some nice words for you. And I've been sick. I'm surprised we're, we actually are going to make this happen this week. We tried yesterday on a normal day, Wednesday. Well, we didn't even try. We just... Well, we had intentions. We both came into the studio here, and I just couldn't make it because I'm still not fully recovered. Well, it's weird because you, you had a good handle on your cough until right after, I guess, the afternoon, yeah. late afternoon just took hold. Been having these, they're usually at night, but I've been having these, you know, coughing fits where I get started. And then when you, the more I cough, the worse it gets because I think yeah. everything gets irritated. I don't know. It's, it's horrible. But, uh, yeah. So I'm glad we, I'm proud of us for coming back for day two. That's probably part of you. This is your second day in the office this week. I know. This is, this is a, uh, a record. It almost didn't happen. I was, I was getting ready and I was like, I don't want to go in. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I feel like I should, I should share my misery with the the Good Day Sir Army here. You just want pity points. I do. That's what I want. No, because th- I. Don't, I mean, how how you know who has this happened to? How many people have happened? So this this happened to me in one month. Got norovirus. My whole family did, except for one. Then last week, Wednesday, came down with the flu, Type A flu, like the worst one. And then three days into that, came down with strep throat. Yeah, beat that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd challenge anyone. That, that's not a challenge I want to take up, though. But of course, yesterday, bef- before my coffee even started, I thought, man, my, my ear is so messed up, I don't even know if, I can, if I'll be able to put headphones on. Then I get home and get the, what is it, rotoscope or whatever? Whatever it is you look in, and yeah, I've got a major ear infection. Well, how, how did you look into your own ear? I didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> that would be a lot of mirrors involved in that. I just was wondering, and, you know, if you had like some kind of camera or something stuck in there. Well, it seems like, I don't know why, but it seems like it's been a year since we recorded last. What Do we have any follow-up? I don't even recall what we talked about, and I haven't really been tracking Slack because I was so close to death. So yeah, I don't, I don't know that we do. I, I, rem- I remember yesterday wanting to bring something up as follow-up, but it escapes me now. I think it was just one of those things that we talked about and, and I had some further thoughts on, but it's gone now. Okay. Um, just news uh so the nv M- mvps have been announced and we yeah. you discovered that you got renewed so you, it was a year ago that you became an mvp and they renewed you this year yeah no oh, this whatever this is called this really it's it's based on software releases i don't understand how this well, is. no it used to it used to be i think they it's seasonal so it was the salesforce releases are seasonal and i think the mvp thing matched it but recently I think this is the first or second round, second round that was, it's under this new schedule, which is just two times a year. Okay. That seems, yeah, I don't understand pegging that to a release of software, especially when, you know, Salesforce, I mean, it used to be unknown whether you'd get two releases, four releases, three releases a year, you know, so to peg anything to that seemed strange. I don't think it was a, a pegging to it. I think it was just a natural cadence to, you know, do all, do all it's, these. That's my point. It's not a natural cadence. It's it's an unpredictable. Well, in the Salesforce world, I'm I'm sure it's a some some sense some something. Uh, something, yeah. something, I don't know. something something. Anyway, yeah. So uh, yeah, John's renewed as an MVP. Meanwhile, I can't even get access to Salesforce DX Pilot. <laughs> <laughs> What's I, the deal with this, man? I don't, I don't know. I I think I think there's a list somewhere with your name on it. This this is the price I pay. This is this is the sacrifice that I'm willing to make. <laughs> to bring my unvarnished, honest opinions and truths to uh, to the public. Your truthiness. This is this is the burn. I'm feeling the burn, John. Still burning. 
What should I do? Doctor, it's still burning. <laughs> I'm sure the doctor has some cream ointment for that. <laughs> need something. I need insiders. I need help from insiders. Although I, I have to say, and I'll, I'll just thank the people that have uh, offered me access through back channels and different things. I, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, that, that's nice. So I guess that's the other side of this coin. Your, your secret net was, you, yeah, my you, secret network. Jeremy, you're it's, like a secret a secret service agency or something. You have a secret blog post <laughs> with all this technology. And you have all these secret contacts. You, you, you must be your own government or yeah, something. I, it's, I have my own underground system here. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, and some more front matter, I guess, is that I, I don't I don't even know if this matters or not, but just this idea that we're going to try to do basically catch and release on these episodes now. Or it's gonna, you know, it's not a promise. It's more of an experiment. We tried this before. Yeah, I think we had some success. We just didn't. I don't know why. We just weren't committed to it at all. But well, because when you when you if, when you start doing like two hour, two and a half hour episodes, I know it's tough. You got to get home for the family, or you need a bathroom break. <laughs> yeah, because what we normally do is we record on Wednesday, and then we immediately go home because we're exhausted from a long recording, and then late later that night, I'll you know edit put the intro in, outros or anything, or if anything needs to be bleeped or whatever, I, I do that. And usually yeah. I try to get you a copy uh, the, night, the night of. That night. And yeah. sometimes it's the next morning, but um, usually no later than that. And then we usually take the day, we both listen to it, make sure that we didn't accidentally leave a cuss word in or something or whatever. And we also listen for titles. Right. That's the other big thing. That's the main thing yeah. that we listen for. Because we, you know, we try to pick a funny title and it's hard to do it in the moment sometimes we do though like sometimes we'll just call it oh that's obviously the show title right yeah um but so what we're going to try to do is uh, well uh, anyway so the, the net result is we record on a wednesday and it takes basically another two days usually usually about 48 hours before us to for us to actually get the episode out and that's because there's stuff that you're waiting for me on right that you can't really do anything until i've got stuff done and then there's right. stuff that you have to do that I've got to wait for you on, and there's nothing I can do until you've got that done. Right. And so we have this and really... And then, then we have day jobs. Exactly. So. And we're usually both, you know, very busy. And so it's just hard. So I thought, well, you know, let's try this catch and release thing again. Why don't, I mean, I feel like we've got a good enough system that we can, as soon as we're done recording, uh, just both put our notes in. We can come up with the, the, the show notes right then on the spot. We need to, we need to be picking titles as during the recording. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I've got this, uh, you know, pretty automated now. I can, within 15 minutes, should be able to generate a, a final MP3. And let's just post it before we leave. I like the live and stream th guys, because they, they have, when they do live streams, they basically have people listening for them. Right. I know, that <laughs> is, and they just toss them, like, title ideas or, you know, topics and, yeah. Yeah. No, that's the benefit of doing a live stream. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and if we can, if we release these on Wednesday night, then not only do the Brits get it before they go home on a Friday, but like the uh, the Aussies and the Kiwis do too, because they're like a, they're a day ahead of us. Are they? Yeah. 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 I mean, we are more than twelve hours behind. We're like I don't know, like fifteen or seventeen hours behind them, something like that. Thirteen, I don't know. But yeah, generally speaking, like it's. In fact, yeah, I mean, they're, it's 3 o'clock p.m. for us, but they're going to work, and it's Friday for them right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I keep thinking today's Wednesday because we're recording. It's not. Today's Thursday. Yeah. 
I, I kept hearing you say Friday. And I'm wanting to. I'm wanting to correct you, and then I'm like, oh wait a minute. Let's see time, and let's just pick. Uh, um, let's pick Melbourne. Yeah, it's eight thirty-one. They're you know going to work. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna try that. See how that works. And we may. I mean, it may take us a couple of times to get good at it. We have to work out some kinks, but. I think it'll be better. I think it'll be less stress on us, less work. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So, anyway, meeting adjourned. Well, I would, um, unless you have an objection, I'd like to start on this issue I've been dealing with today with this share uh, security and communities and sh- sharing records and all that. Is that okay? Yeah, let's go for it. And because I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I actually had in my list to talk about before this even happened today to talk about a kind of sharing story with communities. And basically what it is, so I'm dealing with a, actually it's, we have a couple of communities that we're building at once here. And one of them is a customer community and the other one is a customer plus community. And it's one of those things, and this will happen, I swear, in every community project that's done. You get about 90% of the way through the project and realize that something, some assumption that you made about how the licensing works or how the security works and the sharing or something, you will realize does not work and it throws the entire project into full-bore panic. Yep. And it's like, you know, everyone, all, all hands on deck, try to figure out what the hell are we going to do about this? Because usually you're up against a wall, like switching licenses will cost literally like 10 times more yeah. or... You know, you're just going to have to throw away, you know, half the work. And meanwhile, the budget's gone. It's been used. So. And that, that's not an easy problem to solve. I mean, if, if you're going to go, you know, take over the the management of, of setting up shares and things. I mean, I've I've built quite a few of those and it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. It takes time. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not being critical of Salesforce's licensing because I know they've got a, you know. I know they're trying to make money. We'll, and we'll get into that because they just had their earnings released last week. Yeah, I figured we would. I'm not too excited, but... I mean, I'm, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Just yeah. go over it, I guess. Um, you know, they're, they're... I don't know. I mean, all these different licenses, they're just ways to slice and dice your customers to, to make as much money as you can from them while, while not losing them, right? Yeah. So, for example, in customer communities, there's, there's customer community, there's customer community plus. And... If you want any kind of like sharing and security or whatever, it's pretty much plus. And there's other things too that go along with. But if you have a high volume of users, plus just unless you are somehow making money off these community members, it's too expensive. And so they came out with, you know, there's the regular customer community. But it's got severe limitations. Uh, So, but if you, again, if you have thousands of members of this community, it's probably the only thing you can afford. Hmm. So they like to sell you plus, but if you have a lot of members, you're probably not going to be able to get that. So you're going to have to go to the regular. And so there's, again, that's, that's their way of, they're, they're stratifying you. Like, well, okay, you can't fit in this strata, then you can come down to this strata. We'll get you there. You know, it's their way of not completely losing you. They're going to right. extract some amount of money from you. They're going to extract as much as they can. But if, you know, you're going to, you're going to f- figure out where you are in that sliding scale of licenses. But the net result for someone like me is lots of confusion. And, I mean, I've put together these tables of the licenses, and but it's just getting the whole team to understand. Really, really grok. I know that's an overused nerd term, but grok to mean to deeply understand the nuances and differences of these licenses is pretty much impossible. Mm-hmm. 
it's kind of like understanding system mode. I've really come to the conclusion, I don't think anyone really, truly understands system mode. No, I think we all have some idea, or at least we have an idea based on experience. So we know it's it's like you you do something and it results in this, and so that's your experience. That's what that's what it is to you now because of that. Yeah, right. You you have a, a narrow view of it, or you have, you know, yeah, exactly. You, you, you understand some slice of it. Enough to do what you needed to do, yeah, and it, it worked. Because it's odd, because, I mean, if you read the documentation, it says Apex runs in, in system context. Well, and, and system context is kind of a really loose term as well. You don't know, really know what that means, what that is. Is it a God mode? Is it... Is it an admin mode? Is it super? It, it, it's, you don't really know what it is. You know what? It's not. It's really. It's a little bit of all of those, but but not all of any of them. That's what's weird. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I will get into that. But no, this. this so back to the, our actual situation that happened. We had users that uh, community users that we needed to um, share records to, right? Well, then discover we can't share records to these users because they are whatever the license type is. These would be probably customer community users. You, they can't be involved in any kind of manual shares. And so we thought, okay, um, then I'm probably getting the story somewhat wrong, but we'll just make them the owner of these records. Mm-hmm. Then we have to worry about sharing to them. What we'll do is we'll make them the owner of the records and then we'll share to that record to anyone else who needs it. We can share it to customer community plus users because they can have record share to them. Or you could share it to internal users as well, of different profiles or whatever. All right. Well, turns out, if you read the fine print, not only can you not share anything to custom community users, but any record they own cannot be involved in any sharing. Oh. Yeah. And that's, one, that's an aspect that I don't think I understood, and no one on this project did. And there's a lot of people on this project. <laughs> Including the customer and the and the Salesforce's uh, their their AE or whatever they're called, like no one really understood this. No one caught this this gap between what they were sold license wise and what their requirements were. So we kind of hit that the other day. Uh, so we had to back out back out of the whole ownership solution. Well, so, okay, because customer communities, uh, cust- customer. Customer community users, that's basically a high volume, what used to be called a high volume license, mm-hmm. because they basically can't do any sharing. I, I, think, I think that actually became a problem for Salesforce. I think too many of Salesforce's customers said, listen, we can't, we can't afford the plus licenses. We've got to work with these regular high volume licenses, but we need something more. This like no sharing doesn't work. And a while back, Salesforce, and, and I'm just guessing that's what happened, uh, or maybe Salesforce just said, hey, we know that this is not this is not enough. So they added something called sharing sets. And a sharing set allows you to, it's basically the only sharing mechanism that's available for these high volume users. And what it is, let's say you have a record called, uh, a custom object called, uh, oh God, I don't know, trucks, okay? Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to share some of these trucks with these customer community users. Um, you can't, you know, it's either a, here's your options. Make it, make the sharing model just, you know, public read, right? Mm-hmm, right. In this case, that, didn't, that doesn't work because some trucks are private, so we couldn't do that. Um, and one option that you have left is with, with sharing sets. And what that is, is if on the truck record, you have a lookup to an account, 
then you can create a sharing set rule that says, hey, if the account, if the if the truck's account record matches the user's account, because you know, users are all community users always tied to an account and a contact. Mm-hmm. If that's the same account, then show them, let them see that truck record. That's what a sharing set is. It's like a data. It's almost like a sharing... Uh, what's, what's the other thing in Salesforce that's like that? It's a data-based sharing. It's like depending on the data of the record. Um, what are those called? It's not a sharing rule. Um, criteria or something? I don't know. There's going to say something criteria, but... Criteria-based sharing? Is that what it is? It's so. kind of like that. Yeah. But it's, it's, it, this is purely for communities. And it's, it's actually exclusively for customer community or high-volume, these high-volume users. In fact, customer community plus users, you can't use sharing sets with them. You can't, you can't use sharing sets with this better license. Hmm. Yeah. So again, <laughs> so, just so they're pretty, they're pretty isolated. Then you can't, you can't, you can't mix and match, or you can't cross over, even though you've got this kind of blend of licenses. Right. Yeah. So the thing I ran into today was, I, I needed to when when a truck record was created by one of these high volume users, um, I needed to kick off a trigger, basically, that would create account share records. Right? Okay. And I thought, well, this customer community user obviously does not have access to... They have access to no sharing records whatsoever. They can't even see them. They can't query them. (coughs) They can't DML them at all. They can't view them. And they don't... Those records don't even apply to them, the sharing records. So I thought, well, okay, I'll just I'll just set up a uh, like a specialty class that's without sharing, and all it does is create these account shares. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out even with w- the without sharing keyword, which puts you into this mysterious system context, they ca- it still could it still can't create the account shares, which is what which was really weird. Well, and then that gets into I don't think anyone really understands what system context is. I talked to first of all, I shared this to the entire Good Day Sir Army. I asked this on the Salesforce Stack Exchange, and I consulted with uh, a, what are they called? Certified Technical Architect. Hmm. And no one really knows. No one really understands this. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is the conclusion I came to, is that, and here's what I think. I think the reason that this community user, even with, without sharing keyword, you can't have a trigger that they, that they started, create an account share, is because even though you're in system context, you're, that transaction is still tied to that community user. And if I were to create an account share, it would be basically owned and created by, even though I'm in system context, it still would be owned and created by that user, that community user, right? Right. And you just can't have any shares associated to community users, to customer community users. And I think that's the problem. Yeah. And this isn't, you're not going to find this documented anywhere. You know, no documentation of system context is going to describe this. No discussion or documentation of, of licenses is going to describe this. I think this is just something that's a weird edge case. I'm not even going to say it's a bug. It's probably, probably not a bug. I wish it was. I mean, I wish it were a bug there because then they could fix it and let me. I mean, I want system context to be like, hey, really let me do anything. Right. That's what I thought it was. Let me do anything. But it's really not. And, like, and that's when you said, well, can't you do system run as and run it as like an internal user that can create shares? Right. But you can't, you know, you can, the system run as only works in a, in a SaaS context. Yeah, I was, throw, I was throwing out a lot of ideas to Jeremy. In fact, he started 
uh, experimenting with my ideas, and he decided to call his class uh, John's Dumb Ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wanted me to do an experiment, and so I had to create a new class for that, and I called it John, John's Dumb Idea. Dot CLS. Yeah. Dash. I was really rooting for, for my idea to work, <laughs> yeah. so that you would have the egg, but now the egg was still on me. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I, and I, I even brought... I, here, let me, let me read this. So this, I, I thought, let me I look at the documentation for system context and see if this clarifies any of this. So here, this is right out of the Apex documentation. Most DML operations execute in system context, ignoring the current user's permissions, field-level security, org-wide defaults, position in the role hierarchy, and sharing rules. And I think it does all those. Yeah. Okay? And it says, Apex generally runs in system context, that is, the current user's permissions field of security and sharing rules aren't taken into account during code execution. Most of the time, system context provides the correct behavior for system-level operations such as triggers and web services that need to access all data in an organization. Um, the Enforcing the current user's sharing rules can impact um, SQL and SOSL queries. A query may return fewer rows than it would. And DML operations, an operation may fail because the, users, uh, the user doesn't have the correct permissions. Well, that's interesting, because that's my problem. It's a DML operation. I've, I'm trying to insert an account share. But I'm not using the user's... I'm not enforcing the user sharing rules. I am doing without sharing. Mm-hmm. So it's actually... I mean, this is just... And, and these are... That's the only... I mean, I had to piece those together from various places in the docs. That's, that's about all the documentation there is on what system context is. I think, the, I think the problem was maybe not... I don't think it was that they didn't have access to account sharing. Because if I change it to... Uh, with sharing, I get a specific error message about account share is not available to this user. If I go to back to without sharing, I get the uh, what's the cross reference? Um, you know your cross reference integrity. Yeah, insufficient permission cross entity insu- or something. Insufficient cross reference per- you know yeah. IDs basically, and it's basically telling me that like one of my IDs is bad, or I don't, or it's or it doesn't, or it doesn't make sense in this context, or the user you don't have access to it, or that you're trying to. Um, share a record to a user that actually owns that record, you'll get that message. Mm-hmm. But this is none of those. I think it's that the account share would have been cr- created by this. So you're thinking the actual created by field, that the constraint is there, that it, that it saw yeah, that it, it would have been, it would have been created by that community user, right. and that community user cannot be associated to any share whatsoever. Right. I, think that's the, I think that's the cross-reference problem right there. Yeah. Could be wrong. That, that's. I mean, it's only my theory. I don't know what else to go on. Anyway. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It, it, it makes sense that that's that's the constraint that that's actually that you're actually hitting. Did you try my final idea yet? The batch. Yeah. Or, yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I just haven't had time yet. So yeah, I'm just going to somehow um, have a scheduled batch job that runs, and it'll run as. I mean, I'll have to schedule it. And an admin will have to schedule it to run, right? right. And then you just queue up your requests, basically, for yeah. sharing rules. And, and that's probably okay for this. It doesn't have to be real-time. It'd be nice if it was. Yeah. <laughs> I wish there was a way to have, when, when the user did this action that this needs to run, I wish they could kick off the batch job somehow. But they can't, because then it would still, I'd still be back to the same problem, which... It's assuming still the, running the under issue, their name. Yes, assuming that the issue is the constraint on the created by, meaning that that user cannot be anywhere involved, then you'd still run into that issue. Because, I mean, we, we try, I mean, let's talk about the things we tried. You, you had it in a future context, so you had it in an asynchronous context. We tried it in a queuable job. That didn't work. Um, 
What else did we try? Well, we even tried abstracting it, so we had <laughs> we stuck a middleman. That was one of John's ideas. Yeah, one of John's dumb ideas was stick a middleman and then have an, have that call another class, thinking that for some reason it just wasn't switching the context correctly yeah. until without sharing. But yeah. that didn't seem to work. Anyway. That's the uh, fun sharing lesson of the week. Well, we said we'd talk a little bit about that the context, the the uh, sharing rule context itself, in terms of you know what does it really mean, what should you use it for, that kind of stuff, didn't we? What What do you mean sharing rule context? I'm sorry, the with without and with with sharing. I I, I guess we kind of said no one really knows what it is, so we can't really talk about it. Well, I mean, yeah, without sharing just puts you into system context, and we did I did. Talk about that, but it's weird because the system—it's by default Apex is supposed to run without system context. In fact, there's articles written about making sure to use without mm-hmm. with sharing so Tri- that you make sure yeah. that you're you're not leaking data. Triggers by default run in system context. That's yeah. the only thing that runs by default in system context. Like uh, Apex page Visual Force page controllers are default run in user user context, but right? Apex classes, I believe, run in system context. I believe. Well, unless they're called for, I think they. No, what if? What if? What about an Apex host as a Visual Force controller? That's not going to run in System Context by default. Well, see, yeah, see, I mean that goes back to all the confusion around this. I, I don't know. I well, yeah, yeah. A Visual a Visual Force is going if your controller if it's not marked as without sharing, it's the default is with sharing. Triggers is the opposite. And you know the the with sharing and without sharing, I, I feel like those are misnomer keywords anyway. I'm, it's more about sharing. It's it. I don't know. I feel it seems like it's more than about sharing. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't either. All right, John, what do you want to oh, talk about? What words. do you What have you been working on? Anything good? Oh, work wise, yeah, yeah, lots of good stuff. That's good. <laughs> Did you care to share anything? Any no. in, Anything interesting? No? Well, I, d- I did get my... Uh, we talked last week about the list view stuff. Or not... Yeah, was it last week? Yeah. I got that working finally. Got that all working with the named, conve- named credentials and things like that. And um, someone in our Slack community was also working on something similar. Um, but he opted not to do what I did. I think he experimented with it and, and tried it out. But it, for him, it, it was... He's actually building something around it. I think a product... And so my solution is, it's not the best solution. It, it, it requires a lot of moving parts. You have to have the, the, the uh, connected app, the authorization provider, and the name credential. And that's all really just to kind of keep security out of some kind of config file. I mean, that makes that puts the onus on Salesforce to manage that security, and then I can make my call. But it's still, it's still kind of crappy that, I, that you have to make an out, a call out to the Salesforce API to do something because the the the, the native Salesforce Apex metadata doesn't have it, and there's there's plenty of examples of things like that where you can't do certain things within Salesforce within Apex, but you can do it with an API call. Hmm. Like, yeah, well, there was something. I, there's there's a few things. In fact, there, I mean, there's some libraries out there that that are that are built around you know making calls to the API to do something. I think it's well, some, metadata is the big one. If you want metadata is the big one, but there's other things like like you can't create um <clears throat> I don't know something about creating uh, I think I had to do one to create uh currency rate schedules. That's mm. what it was. Like I yeah. you couldn't do an insert into a currency rate schedule, but you can do it through the API. 
And, and so, is that a data? Like just a D, you're doing like DML insert into yeah. okay. Yeah, <clears throat> but you couldn't do it. Can't do it in, a, in inside of Salesforce. Yeah, with Apex and I mean, so I, I'm sure a lot of the stuff is like we just don't understand the security implications of doing some of these things. I mean, the the complexity and the the sheer number and surface area of different types of attacks and things are are beyond. I mean, unless you're a uh, a web and digital security expert, you know, you probably just uh, Salesforce is they're protecting you from a lot of these things. And just because we don't fully appreciate what those are doesn't mean that like Salesforce is doing something wrong. So I always kind of give them like the benefit of the doubt on some of these things. Just like locker service. I mean, I don't even fully understand that, but I don't think they're doing this because they're like, hey, let's limit what people can do with Lightning, right? That's the last thing they want to do. No, I, I agree. But now, I, that, does that mean they have picked the right overall architecture that I would have picked? No, probably not. I've got issues with the ground up the architecture of, of Lightning, from what I know about it. But being what it is, I think you know they're they're trying to do they're they're, they're trying to provide as much you know functionality as they can while also keeping you safe. And they're always going to err on the side of keeping things safe because they simply cannot afford some major data breach. That was a squirrel move you pulled on me. It was? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I was talking about just access to basic metadata functions or inserting into objects and tables. Now, I I think that there is some ramification to doing those things. Like, there, there's probably some back-end process has to run. It's it's an expensive process to run. I don't think it has anything to do with security, though. That's the squirrel moment I think you pulled on me. But, I mean, I do agree. There, there are certain things well, that are a little more... I guess heavy, intensive, right? And so let me let me throw an example out there. So there's the whole there's the, the dreaded uh, mixed DML mode operation, whatever the hell it is. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right. So you can't, you know, create an account, then update a user, then create another account. Yeah. You can't mix these things. Um, and and the reason is because when you do anything that involves a setup object, that does affect security, right? And a lot of things that affect security, just by the way that Salesforce has implemented basically record-level sharing, is that it's got to go and basically reevaluate all these invisible share records that we don't even see. We don't even see them, right? Mm -hmm. It's like when you, basically when you do a query, Salesforce is actually joining the data you queried against all your, again, we don't see these, these share records. And it and they're you know everything's indexed and it's fast as Oracle. It's a good relational database. So that's a that's a way. That's why you can query, you know, you can have a, all kinds of sharing rules and profiles and all this stuff, and you can do a query against Salesforce. You know, any anything, and you're basically going to get really fast results. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't. The only way to do that is with is the kind of the way they've done it. Um, but but you know the the other side of that is when you make any kind of setup change it's got to go and reevaluate all those sharing records that are in the database probably in a lot of cases and sure could they let could they do that while you while your transaction sits there and waits yes they they probably could but is it a good idea for salesforce or for us for them to let us keep a transaction open for you know 5 minutes meanwhile Everyone in the system is, or you know, in your org is starting to call you and stuff now because they keep getting these cannot gain exclusive lock to record messages. No, it's not a good idea. Like they're basically enforcing a best practice. They're not going to let you keep. They're not going to do anything that is for is is very likely to keep a transaction open for you know more than a few seconds. True, on when it comes to setup objects, but let's take something a little more simple. Like I just want the metadata for a list view, and I can't get that in Apex. 
You can't. No. Yeah. I can query the list view and I can get some information on it. Like, I don't know the name of it and things like that, but I can't get the underlying metadata for it. <clears throat> you can't do this with Salesforce. <laughs> and I wonder if a lot of it has to do with, with the fact that maybe the contract for list views is not set, that it's a, a very dynamic uh, structure or data set that has, that doesn't conform to, to something that can easily just be put out. But then I think, well, no, because you can go through the SOAP and you can get the XML. And so that means it is somewhat formatted and standardized. It's not this loosely just data structure being tossed around. So it, I, I kind of talk myself out of that idea. So I don't, yeah. I don't understand that there are certain, there are a lot of gaps in the metadata API within Salesforce. Well, let me get, let me get uh, Mark in here. Mark, why is it that we cannot access basic, you know, read-only type of uh, metadata stuff from Lightning and all these different places that we want to? I have no idea. Oh, well. That's no idea. Oh, that doesn't help. But, I mean, it takes something as simple as a, as, as a simple requirement and kind of makes it, makes it work, makes it a lot of work to, yeah. to get done. You have to be creative. You have to come up with some ideas, some solution. Yeah, and, yeah. and you have the pros and cons with that. Enterprise software, John. Very complex, eighteen layers. But I did, I did validate because uh, I did mention this last time that the Lightning session, the session context that you're in, the session ID, does not does not is not accessible for the API. Yeah, I, 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 I turned off my named named uh, credential securities and just went to normal and passed it the user session ID, and sure enough, it, it just it it said no, you're not your session is not allowed to do this. Yeah. Security. Yep. So much fun. Yeah, I feel like um, so much of my time is spent on security engineering and governor limit engineering. I spend a fraction of my time of actually building valuable software. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let that get out. No, <laughs> we just, I just no. It's just part of. It's just that's just how the work is. Well, it, it, I, I think that was on my list on on a that we never got to, but it does kind of impact how we estimate things. I mean, we talked about, uh, well, we've talked about plenty of times of how to estimate for projects and how not to estimate and, you know, an agile approach versus a waterfall approach and all that kind of stuff. But it's things like this that, that kind of make you pad your hours. It's things like this to kind of make you go, well, I don't really know everything. It sounds really simple. It's this one liner of a requirement, you know, if this, then that, and then you go to do it, and you and you find out you can't. So you have to get really creative. And that if this, if this, then that becomes if this, then this, then this, and then this, then that. Yeah, totally followed you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't supposed to. Um, Did we ever talk about ducks? The duck technique. I feel like we have. Is this the um, the talk? Tell it to the rubber duck. Tell it to the rubber duck. Was tell it to the rubber duck. It's a debugging technique? No. Okay. That's different, I think. Tell me about that. Well, that is, and I believe it was coined by, um, oh, uh, <laughs> like, uh, what, are the, what are their names? The, the C guys, Kerningen and Richie, I guess. I feel like it was one of them. Maybe it was Björn uh, Strustrup. I don't know. But uh, it, it's basically the idea that you when you have a problem and you're trying to debug, get, work through it, you can't figure it out. And one of these guys, this is how the name got started, they he had a little rubber duck on his monitor, on his, C, you know, 15-inch CRT monitor. Oh, yeah. Because it's back in the day. Yeah. 
And he just explained the problem to the duck and like, and the, through the process of verbally telling, explaining it to the duck, he realized it. Right. Yeah. I've been the that's duck. That's called rubber duck. I've you. been your rubber duck. Right. I'm yeah. in the well, cages. I was your rubber duck today. That's something different. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so what's your duck story? I'm pretty sure we've talked about it before, but I, I actually dug up this article because um, I was working, I was doing a review of some UI, some design stuff that someone had, had been working on for me, and um, I had final approval on it. And I noticed something about the design, but I decided to push it forward and let the customer give me the feedback. And the person I pushed it to said, had responded back with the same feedback that I was thinking, that this one section of the screen was a little bit too tall, too big, and that the customer's probably going to want to shrink it and, you know, to reduce scrolling. And so I just kind of laughed and said, yeah, I'm, I'm employing the the duck technique here. Because overall, I think the screen is pretty good the way it is, aside I, from that I one. I still don't understand the duck technique. All right, so this, I remember hearing about this from Jeff Atwood. I don't know, Jeff Atwood, Coding Horror, Stack Overflow. Right. Fame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I remember hearing this from him, and it always stuck with me because I always thought it was great. Um, and so I actually dug up the quote from his blog about it. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. It's, it's really waiting for thing. a definition of this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start reading people. <clears throat> it, was a well, it was well known that producers, a game industry position roughly equivalent to project manager, had to make a change to everything that was done. The assumption was that subconsciously they felt that if they didn't, they weren't adding value. The artist working on the queen animations mm. for Battle Chess was aware of this tendency and came up with an innovative solution. He did the animations for the queen the way that he felt would be best. With one addition, he gave the queen a pet duck. He animated this duck through all of the queen's animations and had it flapping around the corners. He also, he also took care to make sure that it never overlapped with the actual animation. Eventually, it came time for the producer to review the animation set for the queen. The producer sat down and watched all the animations. When they were done, he turned to the artist and said, That looks great. Just one thing. Get rid of the duck. Yeah. So, I, I, so I, what is that? That, that everyone wants to put their mark on something? Pretty much. Okay. I mean, if you put something for review, someone feels like they have to respond. If, you know, it's, it, you get that awkward moment of, well, if I had to offer one critique, it's this. Yeah. And so in this particular case, he's, he's actually offering them something to critique. Yeah. To make them feel, feel <clears throat> valuable. So I dug that up. Okay. Um, somebody, I think it was, um, who is ne Inez Proc? Is that Neil, Neil Proctor, I want to say? He's probably a, a, a an MVP because pretty much everyone's an MVP except for me. You know, uh, Neil Proctor. <laughs> that is Neil Proctor. Let's see. Um, global head of customer tech for Hive. I may, he may not be an MVP. Uh, anyway, hey, we should start a club. There's two of us. Um, and he, he actually he tweeted the link. This is not written by him. It's someone else whose name I can't pronounce, but we'll put in the show notes. And it says, um, "Are uh, are we losing? I'm sorry, no, no. Are we losing good consultants in the Salesforce ecosystem?" I think I'm supposed to say losing. Uh, but I'll read through a little bit of this. He says, um, over the past couple of years, my experience with customers has changed substantially. Every customer around is trying to work with good consultants at very low prices. And that results in failed expectations because neither good consultants come cheap nor are they in, in abundance. With so many players entering the foray without proper planning and strategy, the implementation becomes a challenge without a good consultant who can drive things from business and technical standpoint and bring together two team to talk to each other. Uh, I have worked with some customers who have burnt their hands once because of wrong guidance from their past consultants that makes them overly cautious now. 
They've been burned. Uh, yeah. They probe every move, and it adds to the complexity of the once-failed and short-on-time project. If the consultant had guided them well in the first instance, their experience on the self-source platform would have been great, and their business must have flourished well. So he's he's got some things here, like high level, like basically challenges. And and I actually don't agree with everything here. And, and I mean, my first thought is, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, eighty percent of consultants probably are not worth the money they're charging. I'd probably agree with that, based on my experience. Uh, and yeah, you're looking for, as with anything, you're always pretty pretty much looking for the best you can get. Well, I, I think I think. I, I think one of the problems is, at least in the Salesforce ecosystem, because that's pretty much the only place I can really speak to, people carry the consultant title that aren't really consultants. They're not business analysts. They're not, you know, they're not someone who can come in and kind of take what you want and give you feedback and give you some things to think about. But what if they've passed the sales cloud consultant certification? Well, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen that. So I don't know what, I don't know what that teaches you. I, I, you know, I should probably go take it so I can see if it teaches me to be a better consultant. But I will say that what I've noticed is people carry the consultant title, but they're not consulting. They're just there to, they're, they're a body. They're a body that knows how to type and, and do this thing with the skill set that they have. And they'll take the direction, but they're not thinking, you know, they're not thinking it through. They're not thinking about all the ifs, all the buts, all the, and providing that feedback. Yep. Being a consultant. Yeah. Well, and, and what's interesting is that he, he's got these categories here that are, Basically, like the inherent challenges, and it's funny because all of them, um, just speaking of certifications, would be things that are not going to be tested or identified on on any kind of exam or certification. The first one is no probing on business requirements. Um, the problem partially lies in acceptance of business requirements as is without probing the end results and looking for alternatives. So this is, I would probably think of this as, yeah, you've got to you've got to listen to what this person is telling you, what they're asking for. And then, because half the time, they're actually not asking for something. They're telling you what they want you to build. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started with my whys, right? Well, why? 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 No. Well, we, we want you to build this thing that's going to uh, be in a ra- rapid data entry for, what? okay, why? You know, you just keep asking these questions and figure out. And it turns out they didn't need the, the thing they were asking for. They did something completely different. And a good consultant will, will do, go through that process and figure those things out. Right. You know, I will tell you, most consultants will just say, okay, sure. And they'll give you a statement of work for what you asked for. Um, by the time they finish it, it will be well over what that statement of work estimated, uh, time and money-wise. And you're going to get exactly what you asked for, which is exactly the thing that you don't need. I agree. Although, I, w- I wouldn't say most. I- I'd say there's a lot of them that do that. Enough that it... Enough, enough that you want to yeah. say most. I mean, I don't know. I, I only know anecdotally. I've you know, I'm not. Yeah. I haven't surveyed the consultant landscape out there. But I do seem. I do seem to see in a lot of advertising lately. And again, this is also anecdotal. But I I have seen you know the the term when it comes to these partners, they're focused more on on wanting to be a partnership with you. They they focus more on wanting to build this team and do all these different things with you. Because we're talking Salesforce in the context of more enterprise level customers, not so much the the quick start type things where I'm going to come in and, and stand up your Salesforce for you and get all your fields configured. No, they're, 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 when it comes to the enterprise section of it or portion of it, they're, they're talking, wanting to partnership and build this longer term relationship. So the advertising and marketing is more geared towards that. Well, they're just wanting to expand their, their grip on you, right? Well, I'd like to think it's more than just marketing speak and that they really feel that they want to partner and... They want to increase... Uh, listen, they're consultants. <laughs> they want to increase their billings, Okay. 
And if you have a good, while, feel, while going home and feeling good about what they did that well, day. Well, and if you have a good, I mean, if you have a good consultant, they're not going to take money for something they don't feel is a good project and has been properly properly thought out and has a good chance of success. If they're a bad consultant, they probably don't even realize that it hasn't been thought out well. They they not even, you know they they probably don't have the self awareness to even know that they're that they ha- that they haven't gone through a sufficient process of of um, exploring you know, the, the whys of the situation and, and alternatives and what that means in terms of their business case and the numbers behind that and everything. They, they don't even know that. I mean, it's just not part of their, they don't go through that process. Well, true, but it, context does matter as well. I mean, are we, in, are we in kind of the tail end of the sales cycle here? Because you mentioned, you know, getting an SOW put together. A lot of times, you know, until you have something signed that says, okay, this is what it's going to cost for at least to do some kind of um, evaluation or whatever you want to call it, discovery, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, you know, you can't really get into those details yet. You know, the best you can do is try to get a big, uh, big picture idea of it and say, here's what we think right now. Yeah. Right. You know, you, yeah, I, that just, I think what you're saying is you, you have to spit, it takes a lot, takes time to flesh these things out and to, yeah. and to figure everything out. Yeah. And I mean, when you're, when you're talking to this consultant, are you actually talking, are you talking to an actual consultant, the person that's going to be doing work with you, or are you talking to a salesperson? I mean, it's, it's different. One of them's just, I mean, one of them may be better equipped than the other to actually have a meaningful discussion about what this means for your business and what you're trying to do. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Next one is insufficient time to upgrade with platform changes. Salesforce is changing so rapidly that it's becoming more challenging to keep yourself updated with every release. It, as in as in just kind of keeping yourself knowledgeable on the release. Yeah, I think he's just saying a lot of consultants just aren't, I mean, their their knowledge is basically, you know, three or four releases behind. I'd say I there think, there is a significant amount of fatigue. I think fatigue is a good way of putting it. You you start out, you know, really reading and combing through every release notes. Maybe you plan your evening around it to sit down with a drink or something and just tackle it and see what what's in there. But there is a certain sense of a fatigue that can happen and has happened specifically with myself where it's really hard for me to get into the release notes. They are bigger and longer to read, but at the same time, I'm also very fatigued on, on trying to keep up with it all. <clears throat> this also reminds me why it's important to work with other smart people like yourself. Because, you know, regardless of how much experience you have, how good you are, whatever, it's, it is usually beneficial to, at least in the planning process to work, be working with someone else because you're going to fill in their gaps, they're going to fill in your gaps. It's, a, it's almost really the, the rationale behind pair programming. Yeah, I'd agree with that. <laughs> I, I think oftentimes we... And it, it's hard not to because, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of economics involved as well. It's hard, it's hard to say we're, we're going to double up on everyone and everyone can kind of pair. Even though, yeah, even though it will probably save you... It could very likely save this project with, you know. Right. I mean, you know, let's, let's, let's consider an architect, you know, they're probably going to be on the upper end of, of the, the pay scale or, or uh, fee scale scale. Now imagine having to stick two people on there during your design phase. And, you know, that's very, you know, meeting intensive, crazy, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, there have been, there have been a lot of advantages where I've been able to bounce an idea off someone and someone, you know, was able to point me either in the right direction or me explaining it, you know, me rubber ducking it. Yep. Uh, it made me think about something and go, oh, crap, that's not going to work because of this. Yep. Or, oh, that's going to work out really well because then that means this, this, and this is solved as well. 
and those things again, th- those can that's going to make or break a project. I mean, and and people don't believe it, but it's like okay, um, you know, if you if you only want one developer to work on this thing, then it's going to cost you, uh, you know, well, let's say let's say you're willing to do the pair programming thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to cost you thirty grand to build this th- little thing. Uh, if you're only willing to have one developer, that's fine. We'll do that too, but that's probably going to cost you fifty grand. But that's not that, to that's, say that that's the that's the uh, that's that's the you know the, the story or the the rationale behind pair programming, right? Yeah, is but that ultimately you end up with a better solution at a cheaper cost. True, but but that, that's assuming that that everyone on the project has to be billable, and maybe for some of these larger consulting shops, these the centers of the world, they can afford to 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 build a team, and not everyone has to be billable, but yet they have support. They have someone that they can go to to, to just bounce some ideas off of. It's, all, it's also a rationale for getting out of the hourly mindset. People, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I, so many people in this business, it's 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 all based on hours. Everyone wants to think hourly. They want to bill hourly. They focus, they they force their clients to think about hourly. Yeah. And it's really the wrong thing to think about. You should be thinking about value. And that's a great, that's a case in point. Yeah. Because once you're focused on value, and if you're able to kind of effectively build a good business model out of that, not saying that I have the answer for that, otherwise I'd probably be doing it, but um, it, it, I th- my theory is that if you can focus on value, then the number of people doesn't matter. You can you can get the right fit for the right project. You can have the right kind of team dynamic because you're focused on the value, not so much the hourly. One of these days, I want I want to do like a whole episode on on value based pricing versus hourly. I would love that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay, um, next one is proactiveness. Uh, well, with consultants being involved in multiple projects at the same time, they tend to lose the art of talking to the customer before things get worse. A well-informed customer is a happy customer. So he's just basically just talking about, you know, communicating early often, bringing bad news first. And I would extend that to be like, uh, customers should be involved with like weekly demos, weekly planning, uh, weekly seeing the thing that's being built. Again, it is called goes back into kind of some some kind of agile process where, as you build the thing, everyone gets to learn from the progress, and that informs every next step. Yeah, because what's the saying? Like if you if you build the thing that you set out to build at the beginning, then you failed. Mm. <laughs> I get it because there's no way it. that at the beginning of that what you thought you wanted was exactly what you needed. Yeah, and if and if that's what if that's still your if that is still the case if these if you believe that's true, then you just squandered a huge opportunity to learn about a lot about your business and about that thing you built. You just had your head in the sand. Yeah, I'm kind of zoning out on you because I, I heard something recently and I don't remember where, but it really made me think. I I want to say it was something I heard on TV, but maybe it was you because you're bringing this up, and it was it was kind of the idea that when you're when you're first starting out and you're doing something, you have this hunger for learning and curiosity and all those kind of things, and that really drives you. But then once you gain more some more experience, you, you tend to focus on different things. You focus more on the end result. You, you focus more on on all the things that you know that are going to be in it because you have this vision and you can really envision that. And you're not doing so much of the you know, exploring of different things, of learning, of, of all that curiosity. And so, I don't know, I, I, think, I think that resonates with me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think teams really need to be encouraged and allowed to uh, to go on experiments to yeah. uh, to ex- to explore different avenues. I mean, I'll, I don't know about you, but I mean, most of the most of the 
work that I do, <clears throat> it's not clear up front what the solution is or what the best solution is. And a lot of times we end up with a much better solution than what anyone thought in the beginning. And that's because I was allowed to experiment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's okay to try something and to hit a rat hole. That's okay. I mean, and that's, that's just, that's, I think that's the nature of the work that we do. But not everyone's suited for that. I mean, there, there are a lot of people out there who would just prefer to be told what to build so they can build it and move on. You know, I, I, I think it does take a certain personality, you know, I think if, and that's what I mean by right fit. I mean, if, if, if you have something that's a little more open-ended, then go to the guy who's really creative. You know, if you have something that just has to get done, there's, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, you know, go to the other guy. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is with, again, just with that process is that you're going to get suboptimal results. If, if you, you know, if all that person's going to do is, is give you exactly what you asked for, then you're not going to get something. True, but as with most anything, I mean, the world isn't, isn't black and white. It's not cut and dry. You know, there are cases where you just kind of have to do the dirty stuff and just get it done. I'm not saying there's not dirty stuff that has to be done. But in general, yeah, I mean, you, um, it, it's, a, it's a creative process. And, and I'm talking about, you know, I'm not talking about a, a, a four-hour visual force page that's got a box and a button and, you know, some code that inserts two records. <clears throat> yeah, but who's, who's to say that, that that couldn't be done better? Who's to say that maybe it just needs one button? Until you experiment, until you go through that process. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to agree with your point, which is sometimes <laughs> it, it's, it's just an incredibly simple thing. But, you know, when you're building a... Well, I guess oh, my point is that... A, 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 a truck fleet um, manage, scheduling and, re, you know, resource management system that has complexities and mm-hmm. all kinds of different, you know, ways that you can model that data. You know, many, lots of options for the different interfaces for interacting with that system. That is something that absolutely requires uh, experiments and desi- design experiments. And if you, if you, that's an example where if you do a big, big upfront design, or I guess it's big design upfront, BDUF, right? Big design upfront. I mean, you will, you, you're just going to fail. It's, you're going to have gotten so many things wrong. Yeah. That it, that project will fail. And in that situation, if you have someone, there's someone that just is the type of person that just needs to be told what to do, well, then that's not the project for them. Uh, Let's see, last thing. Business to technology transition. This is the most important factor of any successful implementation. Even if you don't understand the basic of a customer's business, you must still be able to translate that effectively for a technology solution. Huh? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, The minute details are often misused or sorry, missed, to capture during conversation follow-ups for better clarity are not done on time, assumptions are not clarified, and constraints are not highlighted. I'm not sure I follow this one. Business to technology transition. Anyway. I think it's more just kind of translating business requirements into into the software, I guess. Could be, could be. Um, But I mean, that hmm. comes back to what we were saying earlier, which is just kind of, you know, a a more iterative, agile process where you can kind of put something out there and, and start getting feedback on it right. sooner than later. Yep. Especially, I mean, if you find yourself with a, with a page full of assumptions and a page full of TBDs, you know, just, it might be time just to kind of toss together something and put it out there and, and see where it goes. Yep. <clears throat> I've actually got another, I found a great article actually um, that I sent around to some people. It's really similar. 
And I, actually, I think I would like to jump to that. I'll try to make this quick. Is that okay? Yeah. Go okay. For it. So the title was User Research is Overrated. And you know it's good because it was on Medium. No, I'm sorry. Is this Medium? Yeah, I guess it is. And this is like a custom, it's like Medium, but it's a custom domain. Is that a thing now? I guess it is. Hmm. I don't know. And I, I just, I pulled, I got some kind of pull quotes here. So I'm not going to read the article or anything. But the, the idea is that design sprints have, revealed an expensive waste of time in the modern design process. So that what he's talking about there is he or she, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Courtney, uh, is that a lot of teams that, that work on for sprints, they'll, um, when they're starting like a new module or a new feature, they'll do a sprint that's nothing but design. And, and I, I think he means like visual design. Mm -hmm. You know what? He's, you know, discovers just that that's an, an efficient way to do it. Um, and here's some reasons. So upfront user research is a form of product procrastination. It's busy work. It's a way to avoid making hard decisions, and it delays the need to make something tangible. Mm. And this is this is a really important like principle for me. You should always be making something tangible. And I like to every w week release tangible, usable software, valuable software. And if you've if you've groomed your backlog correctly, you were working on the most important things up front. So you tend to be actually creating and finishing valuable bits of software that you that are ready to be released, that could be released. Mm -hmm. Which is actually a great risk mitigation scenario because if you get to the end of your budget or your end of some important date, if you've done all the important stuff first, the most valuable stuff first, you are much more likely to have a product that's that's that can be released. Right. I mean, I have the nice-to-haves, right? But it can be released. Uh, okay, next thing. I know I shouldn't be saying this because it's kind of sacrilege in the design community. I also shouldn't be saying it because I know a lot of companies still make a lot... Oh, this is so... This is home for me right now. I know a lot of companies still make a lot of money selling a user research phase to companies who don't know better. I know this because we used to do it at our company. It was part of our UX slash product design package in a package deal for you, John. All right. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it includes two to four weeks of upfront user research. We interviewed people. We created personas. We made empathy maps. Ooh, empathy maps. I like that. Mm -hmm. It's not that we were trying to milk our clients of as much money as possible, except we were. We just didn't know better. And I actually think that's the mainly the case. I'm dealing with this right now where <laughs> there's a another service involved where they, they want to do all this upfront, like m weeks, if not months upfront of this, all this user research. And they come up with these really complex mock. In fact, the problem right now is we're in like this panic because what they've ended up with is, is, is something that's far more complex than what the client wanted. But that's what the, all these user research and supposedly actual users came up with. Mm. Um, it's the uh, Homer Simpson car. Yeah, he's, he says, you know, it's not that we weren't trying to, it's not that we were trying to milk our clients. It's just that we didn't know any better. This was the design process. I mean, look at every design process diagram ever. This is what they look like. That's what he's saying. Yeah. <clears throat> he says, it, it took a while, but eventually we started to notice a worrying problem. We could do the pre-research for a specific product or service, do the interviews, create the personas, create the documentation. Then as soon as we got down to designing and testing the actual product, we figured out that even though it was nice to have the user in mind when designing, the useful data came from the first actual user tests, not the research. In fact, more often than not, the personas and other documentation just started gathering dust while the rest of the product continued. Mm. 
Well, I, I think the idea that of getting that kind of user feedback up front, almost, it, it sounds good. It seems good. It seems like we're building this software. We want to know what the users want out of this software. And, and you, want, you want to get their feedback and their input and things like that. But it's, it's big design up front, though. And the reason is because these, <clears throat> the people that do this, and again, I agree with him, this is just the way this has been done. This has been done, I've, I've, I saw this 20, you know, almost 20 years ago. The, the people have been doing this process. Now, back then, there was much more reason to because you didn't have the reach of the internet. You didn't have your apps auto-updated every day. Right? You had to get, kind of get it right. Mm -hmm. And there weren't like, you know, doing huge beta products. It was expensive. You got to mail out floppy disks and stuff, you know. Yeah, so you, you did spend more money on that. You know, heat maps and, and mm -hmm. uh, one-way mirrors and all that crap. Well, heat maps can still be valuable. They can for some other things, yeah. But, no, that's true. But after the fact, I mean, after you have a product to show. <clears throat> but yeah, but the but the way they've always done it is just it's it's not like they're designing it's not like they're working for users on 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 the first piece of the first story that got pulled into the into the Kanban board. They're right. doing it for the whole product, the whole project. They're doing it all up front. Yeah, and they're they're going to end up again. What we end up with is is these really complicated, complex fantasy land, untestable. No assumptions confirmed. No constraints of the underlying systems and technologies considered. Set of mockups and designs that you then hand off to your to your development team and say, "Oh, hey, guys, we got it all done for you. All you need to do is uh, clicky clacky on your keyboard, and you know we're gonna be done." I don't know what I just did. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. Oh, we should get you. You know, we just need to hire. We just need to hire the monkeys to type the things on the keyboard uh, and on the screen and into the compiler, and we're done. That's it. Uh, let me, gosh, I hope I didn't destroy this too much. He, he says uh, this final thing. It turns out that being able to put something tangible in the hands of your potential or assumed customer gives you infinitely valuable data than just researching and documenting, than trying to build assumptions from that. Yeah. And he, you know, he did acknowledge that you're still you're still building it. You're still working from assumptions either way. And that's he's not saying this is like I don't know. This is completely cut and dry. Um. I wish I could find that. Uh, let me, uh, yeah, let me be clear. In both cases, we're just making assumptions. We do not really know what our potential users will really respond to, what they'll understand, or what they'll hate until we really see them using it. But, regardless, right? Point stands. User research is overrated. Oh, big, big design up front is kind of overrated. I, 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 I like mockups. I like doing mockups, but I, I like doing them for very specific use cases. Not I like, yeah, I do too. I like to doing them like th on the hour before I actually start building the thing. You know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not six months before. I mean, have you? And I, 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 this is a rhetorical question because I know you have. I mean, worked on a project where you know someone spent six months designing a system and then handed you a stack this big of documentation for you to go build. Yeah, and you hit chapter one, and you start running into problems. Yeah, <laughs> you know I have. I know. <laughs> and I'm, we did this, that together. This is one of the things where I feel like you know we've got to be preaching to the choir here. Like, I mean, agile software is such it's so past its peak. It's it's not even it's boring to even talk about. And and everyone you know you go to these consultants' websites and they claim to be agile, even though they're not. I've seen their statements of work; they're not agile. Yeah. They just—they just—it's—it's it's good buzzword, and you know people that 
you know, read CAO magazine for a living, um, you know, they they just think they, they know they're supposed to ask for agile, and so they ask for it and they they look on the consultant's website and the consultant's website says it does agile. But you look at their contracts and the way they run it with their projects, it's it's all waterfall. It's the same old thing. Or or I mean better yet, the way they they price the model. Yeah. They don't I mean, if you're gonna do agile, you, it, it changes fundamentally how you contract. Mm-hmm. You know, when you switch to Agile, if your contracts don't get 70% smaller, you're doing it wrong. Anyway. I'm dominating, John. I got a bunch of more stuff. I got <laughs> I can, loads of stuff. I need you to queue up the creepy. The, the, the creepy. Oh, I, I've, got, I've got options for creepy. Oh, you do? Yeah. Which one did you like? I've got male or female. Let's do them all. This is, I mean, they were, we're, we're, we're going to get really creepy here. We're all heading to creepy. We all know that. that Super creepy. <laughs> yeah. We, we know this is coming. We know this is happening with our data. But uh, this is from Gartner. This is actually something that I've, I've kind of put on the back burner for a while. But th- th- there's a new, a new C-level title. It's a, a CDO. Can you tell me what a CDO is? No, oh, CDO. Collateralized Debt Obligation. <laughs> no? Chief data officers. Okay. Now, now you might think that might be someone who's just managing big data within the organization, but no. As I read more on this article from Gartner, because Gartner is the one that's championing this and pre- doing all the predictions <clears throat> of how this role is going to be so big in 2019, CDO is a money-generating uh, business. Well, responsible for a money-generating business. And this is basically taking all this amount of data, this mass amount of data they're getting from IoT, this mass amount of data they're getting from from lead gen and everything else, all these things, and making money off of it. Okay. The, the, the CDO <clears throat> role is, is uh, emo- I'll, I'll, quote, I'll read this. Oh, it's, and, a, it's their job to sell this data, to, col- to collect it for right, something. Right, I'm going to read this. Oh, in okay. most organizations, CDOs will participate in, no if good. not lead, data monetization efforts as a way to demonstrate their own value. Privacy is dead, folks. Yeah. It's dead. Yeah. I mean... But, Listen, all you know any any big company now. I mean, they're they they do have CDOs, which which their goal is to collect as much of this information as possible. Now, yes, are they using it to track and spy on their own customers to sell more crap to? Yes, are they using it to well, for whatever for all these IoT reasons? Yes, but also, guess what? When that's when they're all when they're done with that usage of it, they've got all this data that they can still sell. It's yeah. There's this like salvage value to it. Yeah. You may be done with it, but you can sell this stuff to someone else. Exactly. And, and that, that's, that's exactly what we're seeing is that, yes, you know, we were sold on IoT. We're sold about how, you know, the company's going to be able to monitor that, that, that device or, mon- you know, monitor the stream of information from that and be able to help and, and provide better services and, 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 you know, make your life easier and better. But you're right. Now they're sitting on this cache of data now they get to now they get to play you know in the realm of Google, who does the same thing. They they sit on this cache of data of what you're searching, what you're looking for. Is, what this, you're, uh, is this an L1 or L2 cache of uh, data? L2. And <laughs> <laughs> turning my argument yeah. to negative, but yeah, I mean now they're sitting on the, all this data, and it's it's it, it's a gold mine. All they have to do is 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 open up the doors for yeah. it. So yep. you know when you when you sign up for your IoT service or your device, play play. play Particularly close attention to to the uh, privacy statement, right? Well, or also just install Ghostry in your browser and go to all the websites you normally go to, news and whatever else, and look at how many trackers there are. Oh yeah, I in fact I use a separate browser for for 
um, looking at things I potentially want to buy because if I don't, <laughs> it shows up everywhere. John, I'm like, John uses a separate browser for looking at certain types of things. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I, I was Christmas shopping and I was uh, looking for yeah. things and now every site I went to was trying to advertise to me this thing that I happen to look at that I might want to give as a gift. Right, right. And how is it that you know, you look at something on Amazon, but then you go to Google, and Google's showing you ads for that thing. Yeah, exactly. And this is the, this here's the stupidity of it. You actually bought it at Amazon. You're like, you're no longer a qualified prospect yeah, anymore because exactly. you just bought it. And for the next three months, everyone is spending money on Google ads to try to sell you that thing that you already bought. Yeah. This is this is the state of big data. And this is this is one of the leaders. You know, Google is. Well, that's why we need AI, Jeremy. So the so the AI bot. Can no, go, it is oh, AI. He bought that. I'm saying that. No, no, but it's it's not as smart. It's not as smart. It's not it's not Einstein yet. We need Einstein yeah. to come in and say, no, you know what? He bought that. Don't don't worry. Let's advertise yeah. this other. Let's let's prioritize this other thing that he looked at but didn't buy. Right. But we don't have that yet. All we have is is a bunch of uh of uh, product codes that, right. that I looked at. Yeah. Einstein. Yeah. No. It's yeah. Uh, Privacy is over. It's there. You know there are. Probably terabytes of data on every person listening to this podcast. <laughs> Whatever. What? Well, uh, speaking of that, let's uh, let's have a uh, transparency here. What what data do we have on people listening to this podcast? Pretty much none. <laughs> I don't think we have any. Well, we have anonymous stuff, right? So we know what where where what IP address they're they download from, which means we and idea? we also know we have an idea of like what technology, right? So we know whether they're. Where, where do we have this? I, on the stats thing. On Lipsyn. Yeah, but we don't have the actual data. We don't have the no. raw data. We just have the charts. I've never, should never tried to export the raw data, but I think you can. Oh. Okay. I mean, it doesn't tell you anything more than we already have. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's like where you, where you are and, uh, you know, what, what technology you use to download it, Overcast or, pod, you know, podcast app or iTunes or, or you went directly to our website. By the way, you know what? So it's it breaks it down by like metro city areas. Do you know what by far the biggest city that listens to our podcast is? By far. It's not even close. Uh, San Francisco. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, does that make sense? I, I don't know, I guess. I mean, a lot of Salesforce people there. Um, well, I, I want to get into earnings, at least briefly. And then I also have, um, I got some clips from the earnings call, and I have some clips from Kramer, too, if we want to do those. Sure. They're, they're funny. I have a couple of things, Kind of funny. They're small. Um, you want to do those first before we... Uh, you. The my stuff? The small stuff? Yeah. And we'll end on the financial stuff? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, the one, one of the notes I had, I was, I was doing something for... Uh, no, no I'll, I'll go to my blog. <laughs> For the topic that came up on my blog. Let's all go to John's blog, it, iteratively.com. Yeah. <laughs> if you can spell iterative. Can you not spell iterative? I probably can. I thought it was a good name. I do too. I like it. Okay. So anyway, someone asked a question on one of my articles that I've written. Um, it, it's an older article, obviously, because I haven't written anything in a while. Sorry. But um, in, in, the, in, the, in the sample code, what I usually do is I, I, will, I will put the code for let's talk about a trigger because this is what it was. It was a it was a trigger that did some roll up stuff, and and the question was around the why I wrote my unit test the way I did, and and so I have I have the the object that's going to get triggered, and then right after that it gets updated, and then I do my start test, mm -hmm. and then I call my method on my class that does the actual work, 
and then I do stop tests, and then I do my validation. And I'm hoping that tracks well. It's, it's it, it kind of hard to explain. Yeah. So his question was, well, why did you call your method in the start start and stop test when you you did the update, and that should have fired your trigger, and then all you had to do was validate your code? And I was like, you know what? I really didn't explain that in the blog, and and that that is something that I've learned to do, um, and mainly because of the way I start to test and what I want to happen once this goes into the wild. So the reason I do that <laughs> is mainly because I test my code in isolation. I never, I never start off creating a trigger and then writing my code. I always write my code and my logic, and then I test that. I don't attach it to a do you, trigger Do yet. you tend to favor before or after triggers? One, or, one more than the other? N well, afters always ends up happening because I'm usually modifying other data. But if I'm modifying anything of that record, it's, of course, a before, as much as I can. If that makes sense. See, that's tricky. Um, I've, I've changed a little bit, and I know I'm kind of derailing a little that's bit. That's fine. Um, uh, and it's because, and I, I'll, I'll try to find it. Oh, this is going to be hard. Um, are, you favor, are you saying you're, you're going to favor before? No, I've, I've switched to favoring after, and it's because, if you think about it, um, any triggers that run on before can modify the data. Right. And I like to think that when my, you know, when I have some thing that I, that's it's working in some, in some kind of trigger context here, it's looking at data that is the data. It's not going to change later because that could actually have bad, you know, ramifications for the, my logic. Right. So I tend to put things more in, in after now um, and uh, because once it's hit the after phase, it's guaranteed not to change. Sure. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> I can think of scenarios that where that might not be the case, but I agree. Well, Most well, of my uh, stuff is in, is in the after. The only time I use a before is mainly to modify the record. You know, exactly. Because I don't want to so, incur. Yeah, additional... I, got, I got guys like you modifying stuff after my trigger has run, which is why I've switched to after, right? <laughs> Well, the order of operations matters. Yeah. So, I mean, in the trigger, you know, the handler for the trigger, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, that will define the order of operations when the code gets called, you know, and of course, befores will get called. And then I, I have to kind of be aware of what's going on there. You better hope you don't have like managed packages that, also, that are also I doing know. this, you know. I know. That's it, what I've switched to after for the things I can. Yeah, but I still don't want to, I still prefer before if I'm going to modify that object. I understand what yes, you're saying. No, no. If you're going to modify yeah. that object, yes. But for anything else, if I'm not modifying that object, it's definitely an after. It, because, yeah. I, again, you're right. It, it can be modified, and at that point, everything should be kind of After is the only place you can do validation. If you have, like, complex validation, after is the only place you can do it. I mean, I see people doing it before, but it's it's very... Uh, that's extremely... Uh, that's going to... That's error-prone. Error you cannot validate on before. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. Which is fine. Yeah. Now I got. Now I can remember where I was at. Um, where were you? Uh, oh, the trigger. I I test everything in isolation. Oh, you know, and the reason I asked you that. Sorry, I'm going to derail you again. Is because I feel like, I, and I can't remember off the top of my head now. Is it before or after that? Are I think it's the before. Those those are more. Those lend themselves more to that kind of testing, and the after it's more difficult to do that. I I tend to actually have find myself having to fire the actual trigger in order to get things, in order to exercise my code so that I can then uh, assert uh, the effects. Yeah, there are certain scenarios where that is difficult, where 
it, you, the logic that, that somehow provides that value or sets that value is kind of too big for you to kind of replicate in your test. And so it's easier just to kind of let the trigger fire and then, and then modify it afterwards. But where I can, where the, where the requirements are clear enough and there's enough isolation, I try to test in isolation. I try not to rely on that other trigger because here's what could happen. They could remove that functionality. Um, you could be depending on something that doesn't exist anymore. And in fact, that kind of gets into the, the second half of why I do what I do um, is that you should be able to deactivate a trigger. You should be able to use the native feature of deactivate trigger set to inactive and your test should still be able to run and validate that your logic. Um, and that was really the one of the main, main reasons that I did that. Um, not only did I get the added benefit of being able to test my code in isolation, but if for some reason that trigger or that logic had to be temporarily deactivated for some mm -hmm. reason. Yeah. Maybe there's some new migration coming in. We have to deactivate that or some some other reason, whatever it was. You know, you should be able to deactivate that and your code and test should still be able to pass because that logic is still in the system. It's still there. It's just it's not firing automatically. Um so that was that was kind of that was just kind of something that that I wanted to talk about and bring up because it wasn't something I ever explained in my blog, but I, th I thought it was a worthy topic of why I do that, why I do it that certain way. Yeah, <clears throat> and I get that. Um, it's it's nice to test things in isolation, especially for isolating from big system things like triggers, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if you're going to do that, you also need a more, I guess, kind of end-to-end test that tests that whatever is from your trigger, whatever is dispatching all this other code, that that is doing its job correctly. Right. Yeah. I've actually, I've actually, I've told you this before. I've switched to more end-to-end -end testing. I've found that it's unit testing, true unit testing, where you know a method is is basically the unit you're testing, or a class is the unit, you know, an, a, a, an isolated class. It is just simply too hard. It, it's too much work on Apex. It's too clumsy. You don't get the benefits as much as you do on other languages because the language is not dynamic enough. The facilities aren't there to be able to do really good isolated unit testing. Um, and I, you know. I don't know. It just it's, it seems to be much more valuable to me to to do end to end testing because really that I don't know. I could argue against this, but that's that's the most important thing is that when you put something in the beginning of the system and it all the triggers and the database and whatever happens at the end, like this is the result. Yeah, is it? Can it be good to also have true unit testing in there as well? It can be, and yeah, I I won't get into that now. You can make arguments for that, but well, the problem with I guess you have this. You have. This, I feel like you still have the same problem either way. You still have to set up a proper scenario that's going to cover all the different branches of your code. Yeah. In fact, I was dealing with that today. I, I, all my you know perfect path tests were were passing, and mm -hmm. then I I got to the point where I was testing all my you know edge cases, and I started finding bugs. Yeah. So. And those, and it's important to get coverage for those for those edge cases. In fact, like for the negative cases and all that kind of stuff. The negative cases, but even some like scenarios that I don't even think would really happen, but I coded for them, and I had to find some way of of getting it to, to get into that state. And right. that, that's the hard part about unit testing with Salesforce is 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 the, is the negative test is trying to get into a state that probably shouldn't be in, but you want to test to make sure your code can recover. Yep. You know, it's not going to crap all over itself. And <laughs> <clears throat> yep. So. Another thing is I was working on something that was based on it was based on triggers, but it was it was based on these very minute pieces of data that was going to get inserted. And that data could be inserted one at a time or or in bulk. It, it, but but each one of those in a series matters. 
I don't know if I'm explaining that really well, but let's say you have a series of transactions and the series of those transactions matter and how they come into the system matter. But when you're dealing with, with Apex and triggers, it's all one big transaction. It's, it's 200 records at a time. And I have to trust that everything that in the transaction is in the order that I want it to be in. So are you saying these things, the series of things, is this series and all the elements in the series, is that all coming in one transaction? Or is it across different transactions? It's almost like an edge case because the way... Well, answer my question. What? This series of things and all uh-huh. the things in the series, yes. are they coming in one transaction or are they spread across transactions? I have to explain it. I have to explain okay. it better. all right. That's fine. <laughs> And I'm using transactions as just kind of a general term. It, it, there's something more specific, but I'm just going to use transactions. And that the way that the, the the business viewed this functionality happening was someone would create a record, and then I would be able to key off of that record and do a bunch of stuff. And then the next transaction would come in, and I'd be able to do a bunch of stuff. And de- and depending on where they're at, those transactions will mean certain things. It'll it'll it has a different purpose, or it has some kind of logic that triggers or says something thing or the role or there's also rollups involved that will roll up and mean certain things, but it all depends on the order of, of those operations. Um, what they didn't think about and the part that I'm really trying to solve for is what if all these transactions come in at once? What if there's some other trigger mechanism that makes this one transaction turn into 10 transactions for the same, re- for the same parent record? Right. So you're saying there's there's a sequential or a temporal coupling or importance here to these to these records. Exactly. Yeah. But no one thought that through. The, the requirements on the surface were very simple. It was if the record if if a new record new transaction comes in with this state, then go and do this, and if it comes in with this state, then go and do this. And I'm talking things that affect the system that that goes out and says, "Oh, I'm going to close this opportunity and and mark it as abandoned and create a new one because now there's this new transaction that's going to replace that transaction. It's not like I, I can just say, okay, I'm just going to go and jumble all this stuff around. No, it has to happen in a very specific order. Otherwise, I'm going to screw up someone's opportunity. Yeah. Um, so that just, that just got me to thinking about the whole process of requirements and how simple it was and how it was supposed to be something very simple, but it expanded to something really big. My, my code went from being this, you know, handful of lines of code to being an entire class with 500 lines <clears throat> just to handle the 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 what's supposedly edge case of more than one transaction coming in for that record. Well, I'm glad you f- actually thought about and, and explored that problem space more versus just doing what the client told you to do. Right? <laughs> well, that, yeah, and that, but that th- that brought me to another tangent of, you know, we we talked about um things like process builder and flows or even AI and Einstein writing writing things for you and writing the code. I'm like, you know what? The one thing it doesn't take into account is is a, is those type of scenarios. It doesn't. It also doesn't take into account the, a level of acceptable risk. I mean, even within these transactions, I'm kind of taking a risk. I'm saying, okay, I'm going to assume that everything's going to come in in an order, and that and they, I'm going to be very careful <clears throat> not to yeah. shuffle that order. And well, I'm going to assume that everything in this trans this 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 trend this one. Tr- this uh, execution trigger transaction, everything's going to be in the order that that it's meant to be. Yeah, because there's there's nothing that says this is sequence one, two, three. There's there's just no chance of that. Right. Yeah. No, that's part of uh, engineering, right? I think that's I think that would be main, mainly temporal coupling. Yeah, but it, it, was, it was something I had to deal with. It was it was it was something that. Kind of 
kind of put me in a in a crazy state because I, I had a very short timeline not not a very short timeline but I had a I had a short enough timeline because it was supposed to be a simple requirement that just kind of blew up out of proportion. They're all supposed to be simple requirements, John. No, they're not. No, they usually <laughs> most of them most of them are are promoted as simple. Things are never as simple as what they are. I can tell you that. Yeah. Well, I'm done. All right, well, let's get into earnings. All right, so Salesforce released there. This is Q4 of their 2017. So they're done, even though we just hit March. They're done with 2017. <laughs> yeah. Their fiscal year 2017 is over. Uh, so for the quarter, uh, sales were $2.29 billion, which is actually a couple of ticks up from analyst estimates. That's good. And 20, uh, 27% year over year from fourth quarter. So, you know, not 34% anymore, but still, uh, given that they're a $10 billion company now, pretty damn impressive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, full year, it came in at $8.39 billion, uh, which is up 26% from 2016. Uh, their non-GAAP profit uh, was $0.28 cents a share, which I think was also up a little bit uh, from expectations. And their cash flow uh, in Q4 was $706 million, so $706 million, uh, cash flow generated from operations in Q4. Uh, but ga- GAAP earnings, right? GAAP. I know, silly me. Always concerned with, oh, yeah. always concerned with uh, actual numbers, not not you know fairy tale numbers. Uh, they lost seven cents per share. Uh, here's a quote: So the cloud software giant reported a loss of fifty one point four million dollars, or seven cents a share, on revenue of two point two nine billion in the final quarter of two thousand uh, seventeen. After adjusting for stock based compensation and other effects, Salesforce claimed profit of twenty eight cents a share. <laughs> So they lost seven cents a share, but they're claiming they actually made twenty eight cents a so share. So when they say account for for stock based compensation, they're saying they took it out. They pulled that, yeah. And there's a if you read in there any of these documents, the the ten Qs and the ten Ks and all the stuff, there's a a paragraph that justifies <laughs> why they think they can do this. And it's it's not uncommon. I mean, a lot of these companies do this. It's it's just it's it's funny. It's it's I don't know it's chicanery. I don't know what it is. It, it's funny to see how they played with the numbers. Yeah, it's become it's become a thing to do. Uh, but yeah, their stock-based compensation for the Q4 alone was $244 million. Wow. Which, if you, if you tie that back to the cash flow they generated, $706 million, it was 34% of that. Wow. I know. Um, so again, so I'll say, you know, overall, I mean, still growing for a, for a big, you know, 20-year-old company now that's $10 billion, still growing like crazy. Twenty-seven percent, right? Yeah. So there, there's a lot of positives here. Um, they are approaching gap profitability, so that's good. Uh, but stock pay compensation is still a concern. And the other big thing, when I've, I think we started talking about this about six months ago, good, the goodwill on their balance sheet that's come yeah. from all these acquisitions, they are now up to forty-one percent of their assets are goodwill. It, it's, it clocks in at seven point two billion dollars. Wow. Here's another way to look at this. 97% of Salesforce's book value is goodwill. So book value is basically all assets minus all liabilities, right? What you have left, that's their book value. And 97% of that is goodwill, which is, you know, again. And, that, and that's not going to slow down either because they had some new investment come in that that um, has been touted as being kind of activist. I got we we have to clarify that word cuz I I used it but you you also wanted to clarify it with me which is that it's not activism as in political and social activism it's kind of yeah, more investor of activism investor activism and, and and the rumor is that they want to go on they want more acquisitions 
Really? Yeah, and I, I don't think they have near the power to do that. I, I know I, I saw that one article about about that, but I don't think that I don't think they're going to be able to have any effect. But they don't control near enough of the company is the problem. Um, let's see. So Salesforce projected their first quarter earnings. So this is looking forward now mm-hmm. of twenty five to twenty six cents a share. Now this is this was a problem because Wall Street expected thirty cents a share. So basically, after they released, they released these uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah, it must have been Tuesday, right? Yeah, it was Tuesday, Tuesday evening after the bell closed, or the market closed, bell rang. Uh, and they traded down, like all, in, in after-hours trading, they were down about 3%. And the reason is because their projections for Q1 are soft. So they wanted 30 cents a share, Salesforce is saying, eh, it's going to be closer to 25 or 26, 26 cents a share. And also, I, I think some other uh, forward-looking stuff was was negative. Um their, their forward, so again, looking at uh, their one-year-out projections, their for, what's called forward PE, which is their price-to-earnings ratio, based on what they're saying they're going to be a year from now, mm-hmm. is still 68, which is still really high. That's basically how much people are paying for Salesforce's value. So as an example, I think, I think Oracle is like 20 PE, which is still kind of high. I mean, I'm, I'm the old school. I'm like, you know, I'm looking for companies that are like 10 or 12 PE. I think that's a good value. <laughs> it's how much you're paying for their earnings. Mm-hmm. For every cent of earnings... What are you paying for that, basically? So anyway, yeah, I mean, and just, I don't know, it's interesting. You know, you got a, a, a $10 billion company, you know, here who's been around for, you know, 20 years and, and still still cannot earn a dollar. So that's kind of where they are. I don't know. There's there, there's ways to make money off Salesforce's stock. Don't ask me because I, you know, I'm not, a, uh, in, I'm not one of these investor types. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's not traditional. It's not the traditional. I don't know. You got to look at all these... Uh, you know, you got to play the market puts and calls and, uh, you know, all these options and stuff. You know, here's, a, here's another interesting thing. And I, I think it's really interesting to look at this from this, from the political aspect. So, you know, you know, we talked about how Salesforce's stock had been flat for basically two years. I mean, you know, the, again, the only people making money on the stock and that, and over that, over that period of time was where it wasn't, if it wasn't people who were just owning the stock and sitting on it, you weren't making any money. Um, they had traded over $80 in 2016. Um, but on November 8th, which is that was election day, right there at $76. But then they immediately basically tanked to 68 because of they had disappointing earnings release. Remember that last yeah. earnings release kind of disappointing? Yeah. But since then they've they've rebit, they've they've been, you know, they've rebounded, they've been riding what some people are calling this Trump rally. So they've traded for over $80 since the most of February. Um and again, like I said, they they traded on after this earnings release. They were down all night in after hours trading, uh, trading three percent. But then later later that night, this was Tuesday night. Trump gives this what's supposed, supposedly the best speech, you know, and uh, and it, or whatever the best speech he's ever given. And the markets opened, and in fact, we we're still hitting these stock market records, right? And the, and the markets opened like two or uh, two or three percent high or something like that. Uh, and Salesforce. It, by the time the markets open, we're trading positive. And I did the math here. Um, since Trump was elected, Mark Benioff, has, his wealth has increased by $500 million on Salesforce's stock. Wow. And all of Salesforce's investors total $10 billion uh, value increase. It's a nice chunk of change. Yeah. So anyway, okay, let me get to clips. Clips are always fun, right? Yeah. So I, I listen on, uh, this is what I do for this podcast. I listen to the earnings call 
And I also watched the Kramer episode. So hopefully I will set these up well. Oh, let me change, uh, I gotta change the uh, audio device. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, Sales Cloud has become one of the very largest uh, software uh, products in the entire industry. And of course, all by itself, I think it's probably the largest cloud computing company. Is that right, Mark? They're talking about Sales Cloud alone. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's over three billion, Mark. Yeah, it's over three billion, so that's bigger than, Sales Cloud is bigger than what Workday, ServiceNow, NetSuite, correct. Any, it's better than Oracle's entire cloud business, that type of thing. <laughs> I like that burn there. But I have to say, I did the math on this. If I can get mine. Oh my gosh. You about to do some fact checking? <sighs> I got to get a better soundboard, John. All right, I'll build you one. Yeah, did some fact checking. Um, they said that Sales Cloud is bigger than Oracle's entire cloud business. Well, okay, so as of a few months ago when uh, Oracle's uh, earnings release. Their their a cloud is over a billion dollars a quarter. Um, and by the way, in that quarter, Salesforce had a gap profit of two point seven billion dollars. But so, yeah, and and Sales Cloud is like oh seven. I, I don't have it in front of me. Hang on, seven or eight hundred million in a quarter. Let's see, Q four Sales Cloud. Uh, yeah, eight hundred four million dollars, and Oracle's over a billion. So. Yeah, funny. I like the dig, but not exactly true. <laughs> uh, okay. Salesforce One, which is the mobile extension of Salesforce, sales, sales Cloud, won the mobile app for businesses um, of the year at Mobile World Congress. Um, that, you know, exceeds our expectation, but it really demonstrates that Sales Cloud works incredibly well in the mobile environment, the best business mobile app. Um, so Salesforce One won best business mobile app. Uh, I don't, how? I don't know. I was going to ask you that. I mean, I'm not trying to... Trying to I'm not either. Dismiss it. I'm just saying, how? How? What was the criteria? Well, I'm just saying, I'm wondering, do you think that, does that sound legitimate to you? Like, Well, maybe if it's based on install numbers. I mean, it's... That's true. I mean, Salesforce I don't know what user base on. is gigantic, so... If it was based on that, then yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think we'll leave that to the listener to decide whether that's a legitimate uh, award or not. <laughs> uh, okay. Here's a funny. So, uh, last year we Hashtag. pricing, as you know, uh, last year we enhanced our uh, pricing and made changes based on customer. <laughs> like the enhanced. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, okay. That's enhanced a nice way to put it, right? Pricing. That's not the best part, though. As you know, uh, last year we enhanced our uh, pricing and made changes based on customer uh, feedback. That yeah, so customers were asking for higher prices. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I want to just let you guys know, uh, I really like Salesforce, but you're not charging yeah, it for oh, it. It's, it's just so cheap. I know. But, okay, that's that's still not the best part. It's been received incredibly uh, well. It's been, it's been received incredibly well. <laughs> uh, it's those lightning enhanced editions. Oh. Even though they don't necessarily get, they don't, doesn't, doesn't get you lightning, doesn't prevent you from having license, uh, lightning. Just it's just called lightning. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that was the uh, the the dotted line there that, that you know you had to if you wanted the new Salesforce Lightning license and you know you're like yeah I really want that and so you paid more for it so that that means that you you did want to pay more. It's the it's FOMO, John. FOMO. Yeah, fear of missing out. Oh yeah, there you go. I mean, you don't want to get stuck with a non-lightning license. No. Either. That's just embarrassing. <laughs> See, he's leveraging the the millennial mindset there. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, next we have, uh, here we go. Uh, speaking really about uh, uh, our, our analytics cloud so, and our Wave platform, which now you know that we've also augmented and extended with Einstein. Now, that really changed the game on analytics. Now, I'll just tell you that how I run my own um, business has dramatically changed based on this product, and that is very simple that, um, you know, we have, like a lot of companies, every Monday we all sit together, about 20 of us, and we go through how the quarter is doing and what the major issues are in the companies, our staff meeting. And there's one extra uh, seat left at the, at the table. And that's not for Elijah. The extra seat that we're leaving is for Einstein. And that chair, um, uh, which, you know, has a little Einstein doll in it, I turned. <laughs> so, so leave a chair for their Einstein doll. Oh, is my this, God. Is, is this uh, the executive version of rubber ducking something? You can turn to Einstein if you don't know maybe, the answer. Maybe, maybe. And is it is this a blow up doll? <laughs> and I want to know they're licensing. Well, no, the better question is is it is it like life size? That's what. Or is said, it like the tiny well, little one? He said little doll, so I don't know. I mean, little. I mean, you know, five ten could be little compared to him, <laughs> right? I but I want to know is this? Yeah, is it, is it like a wooden Pinocchio doll? Is it a blow up doll? And I want to know also the deal that they struck with the. With Einstein, you know, the Einstein estate, did it include, you know, uh, that he would con be contributing, his, his likeness would be contributing during executive meetings? <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I have a question for you after this, so let's uh, finish this. ...to in the meeting, and I can say, Einstein, tell me, how is the quarter doing? Now, first of all, did you know that Einstein now has a voice capability, just like the, uh, the, the, the woman in the cylinder tube and... Uh, Whatever these other devices, maybe, maybe he's hinting at a future product. Safe harbor, John. Maybe, maybe instead of the little cylinder tube Alexa service, you're not supposed to say it. Echo, <laughs> echo device on our desk. We'll have a little Einstein doll, and we can talk to it, and he'll talk back. That's what it sounds like. You heard it here first, folks. Usually, I have to say that to Keith Block. Okay, but now <laughs> I have. No, here, here's what happens. Here's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Benioff turns to Einstein and asks it a question, and Keith Block hides behind yes, the chair exactly. and like grabs him and moves him like you would with your kids and says, you're doing great, Mr. Exactly. Benioff. Yeah. <laughs> have Einstein, who goes back and looks at all of our fiscal year results over you know, a long period of time, looks at all of our account executives' uh, opportunities and deal flow, look at all of our global pipelines, and then all of a sudden says, well, Yes, you're going to make the quarter. Or, no, no, you're going to exceed the quarter. Now, John, oh, so he's a magic eight ball. this isn't Ask John, though. Okay, if the system is looking at just this historical data, right, looking at, or, and this, whatever, whatever period you're looking at to, to add your numbers up, is, is that artificial intelligence? It's AI. Is AI not artificial intelligence? No, it's not. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's its right. own. It's its own word yeah, now. It really is. Um, almost intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And we have a show title. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta track that for me, John. Well, neural, uh, neural. I won't be able to say this word. Neural networks is trying to defend against yeah. becoming AI because it, in a lot of the descriptions it says this is not some statistical analysis engine. It, it's, uh, I, it's, it's just, it's funny. Yeah. Okay. This is an, this is going to be another Ask John, so I need you to listen closely. You know, we had a call from a major customer of ours, their CPG company, and they have a big issue. And the issue that they have is in their stores, 
they have a lot of shifts happening on inventory. That was shift, by the way. They have a lot of shift <laughs> happening on inventory. <laughs> and they also have a competitive situation as well. Uh, they want to know what's going on. They want to know competitive products are ending up in their in their shelves, um, which is you know supposed to be merchandised only with their own uh, proprietary products. So we showed them just by using a cell phone camera and using uh, Einstein and our deep learning capabilities, um, which have you know benchmarked I think as high as um, uh, many of the other AI clouds. I'm sure many of you are following that work. Well, all of a sudden, what we showed them was with a simple camera, they were able to do real-time inventory analysis of their um, uh, retailer shelves. Now, John, I know that you have worked a lot in uh, inventory systems, businesses that have lots of inventory and that have lots of logistics and material handling and all this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I've also done merchandising. It, does this sound like a good... Well, let me, let me... Hang on. Let me let this go on. And they're able to, based on that, analysis that's happening from those cameras. So they walk around with a cell phone camera and take pictures of, of shelf fronts. Mm -hmm. Understand the competitive environment, number one. Number two, understand their own environment. And number three, when they uh, are seeing a level of depletion on the shelves that they want to replace, they can just roll trucks automatically. Okay. So, uh, based on your experience in, the, in this type of industry, it is this how you want to be doing your inventory? It's in order to literally roll trucks. <laughs> to roll trucks? Is, <laughs> let me ask you this. Is this a better way to do inventory? It's not. Well, he's describing the wrong thing. It's not inventory. It's, it's um, what was it called? It's, it's merchandising. But I, I had to do this. If, I, listen, I, if you take a picture of, of the shelf front and it happens to be empty and you no. roll trucks because of that? that that's not, but he's, <laughs> this, is, this is not how you run things. He's not describing inventory. And this though. is not, this is not AI. This is not machine learning. In, in retail, this is, this is a whole different beast. This isn't back end warehousing stuff. In retail, because I did this, I did it for Microsoft actually. Um, you have to go to the stores and you have to see that they, they put your product on the right shelf, that it's on the right shelf on the right height. You got to make sure it has enough product. And if you're, if you can push the other guys right to the side yeah, exactly. and, and push them back. <laughs> yep. But that, that's merchandising. And you do have to take pictures because you do have to kind of document that you did everything, that it looks a certain way and it has enough product and, and that everything looks the way the displays and you got to set up the displays and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I had inventory in my car as I went to stores so that if it didn't have, I would stick it on there. Yeah. That's what it was for. Right. So, yeah, I rolled trucks. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not uh, I don't that's what he's talking about I, this I mean the, the story but uh, I'm sorry I, I want to believe his stories I really do the work, what we got was was a verbal preview of the next augmented reality demo we're going to get at Dreamforce every year they do some kind of augmented reality where they do this next we're going to see a bunch of shelves and they're going to have the phone they're going to do this thing I mean do you think this is this is a what he just described do you, is this something that's available now you took a picture with your phone, sure. No, that you're rolling trucks based on walking around with your your, your, your Einstein app. You have an Einstein app running on your phone, and you just walk around videoing uh, shelf fronts. And then that is going to, he talked about him. You know, um, using get, Salesforce Einstein. And of course, that also can create customer service cases. It can create oper sales opportunities automatically, automatically with no... No one else involved. So all of a sudden, salespeople and service people and marketing people and even truck drivers 
are all alerted to changes that are happening in the retail environment, which up to this point haven't really been monitored very well and certainly not efficiently. But that's kind of what AI and Einstein are giving us now in the current state of play. That is a very low-cost camera giving us, uh, coupled with Einstein, gives us incredible intelligence into their customer's environment, their customer's the retail store. So this vision of the future that AI is going to make our customers more successful, this is playing out now. It also helped us close a very large deal in the fourth quarter. This, this is applying uh, the wrong solution to a problem. The right solution to that problem is proper inventory control and inventory management. <clears throat> you don't roll trucks based on <laughs> based on what the shelf looked like because there's back stock and there's like all kinds of other stock and it's all controlled. Well, yeah, there there is, but I <laughs> I'm just I'm trying I, I, I don't I don't, know. I don't I'm, I'm, understand not, the story. I'm not using Einstein today, so I don't I don't I don't know what it can do, but I, it sounds like Einstein is just a, yeah. a a triggering mechanism. Like there's some threshold there's some configuration that sets thresholds and things, and when when the person takes the picture and says Here, there's no inventory, which is a flag, it, it's no different than than me writing a trigger, except this time Einstein yeah. makes the decision, not me. Of course, you got you got you're paying a person to walk around to to go to take their cell phone, walk to the shelf, and take a picture of it. Yeah, but and instead of this person just saying, "Oh, Fitbit," that, that, oh. <laughs> <laughs> marker <laughs> turns out, oh, that our shelf is empty right there. Uh, and then you know, putting it in an order, <coughs> you know, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna buy this super expensive enterprise system <coughs> that you have hopefully trained on enough images of empty and not empty shelves that it actually knows what it's looking at, and and is going to roll trucks for you. Okay, it's just a. I'm sorry, that's just a weird example. It, it, it is a weird example, weird. and I, I understand your hang up on it, but to me, it's not that foreign. Uh, it really okay. is. All right, I'm going to move on then. Maybe maybe that's a maybe that's a realistic thing. Thirdly, for Mark Hawkins not to leave you off, but uh, uh, as, as you as, as you execute Mark's plans to double the size of the company, how should we be thinking about the margin profile? Uh, is there a non-linear element of the margin growth in the next three to four years as you get scale? Thank you very much. So yeah, he's talking about <laughs> is the margin growth non-linear? But the reason is because like. As you've seen, Salesforce's revenue just yeah, go this way, right? Up mm -hmm. and up and up. Like the uh, the the margins have, you know, been... Actually, that's one of the things. This this quarter, like, they, I think they got dinged on is the margins, or gross margins are, are down a little bit. But he's like he's like saying, hopefully, hopefully, you hit some point in revenue and those margins will actually catch up and increase in a non-linear way. But his, his final thing he said was, let's, let's see if you can catch this element of the margin growth in the next three to four years as you get scale. Thank you very much. As you get scale. Okay. So here's my Ask John. Salesforce is a $10 billion company that's been around for 20 years. Uh -huh. At what point are we at scale? Never. <laughs> that's, I think that's a valid answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. And this well, is similar. I, I think that the, uh, I think it's pretty clear the customer, the, the company over the last 18 years uh, has had an incredible vision and consistently has delivered new innovation to the marketplace. Obviously, pioneering cloud and bringing sales cloud to, to the market 18 years ago was a great start. It was a first act. Many companies never get beyond that first act. You know, we've gotten beyond the first act, the second act, the third act, the fourth act, and we're, we're well into our fifth act plus.
So then the fifth act, so may, may, you think scale is at the 10th act? I don't know what he's trying to sell there. What, what is he trying to say? <laughs> We've been around. We're going to still be around. Is, yeah. is that what he's just trying to say with that? I don't know. But yeah. It, it seems like a weird argument act. to make in your fifth act that yeah, most, most companies don't make it this far. Yeah. I, I just wonder what, wait, at, which act, at which act are you at scale? I'm going to say 10th. <laughs> given, given, given the climate, I, yeah. I'd say never. All right. Sa- Salesforce and Amazon both just, they just, they just want to be R&D companies. Let's, let's jump to Kramer. He's a little bit more dynamic. He's more fun. Right after the election, tons of investors got gun-shy about owning tech stocks, especially super-fast growth tech stocks. I, I want you to, um, I don't know, I want you to try to uh, figure out, try to guess after listening to this, what like the theme of this is. What, what do you notice? Stocks. Part because many of these Silicon Valley CEOs are campaigning against Trump, but also because secular growth stocks become less attractive when the economy accelerates, which is exactly what our new president is trying to accomplish. However, since that initial sell-off, many of these tech stocks have come roaring back. Just look at Salesforce.com, the king of cloud computing. Salesforce bottomed at 68 near the end of last year, and since then, stocks taken off rally up to 81 bucks at today's close. That's 20% gain two short months. After that kind of run, it's very hard for a stock to rally even on a great quarter. So when Salesforce reported some robust results tonight, it didn't shock me that immediately the stock traded down. People nitpicked. They had a three-cent earnings beat off of a 25-cent basis at higher-than-expected revenues of 27% year-over-year, 29% increase in deferred revenue. But some people talked about gross margins and anticipated guidance. Not- oh, some people talked about gross margins. Those, those idiots. I know. Uh, what are they stuck on details for? Not being as strong as they would like. Still, this is a great company. So let's check in with Mark Benioff, the visionary co-founder, chairman, CEO of Salesforce.com. Learn more about the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, hey, thanks uh, for having me, and good afternoon from San Francisco. All right, Mark, you had some pretty amazing numbers here. You had uh, $2 billion in operating cash flow, which is the number that I always look at to measure your actual health. Uh, Delivered more than $10 billion in revenue for fiscal 2018. You're on plan for that. 27% year-over-year, 28% in constant. What are some of the big accounts that got you there? Okay. Why why is Benioff laughing? Is he breathing hard or laughing? Well, he's, he's a bit of a mouth breather, first of all. Um... But I think he's also laughing. And I think, here's the, did you, first of all, did you, did you take out a theme from that? This is, I'm probably not asking you the right question here, but. Yeah. First of all, every, when, every time Benioff goes on Kramer, it's a giant native ad for Salesforce. I mean, yeah. if Salesforce is not writing a check to, who's at CNBC for this, then I don't know. Maybe that's the way he does. I mean, I, I don't know. Kramer's always been such a cheerleader, and and he's always setting Benioff up. And did you hear the very last thing he says? This is not just a native ad for Salesforce. This is a native ad for Salesforce's biggest customers. You're 28% in constant. What are some of the big accounts that got you there? And that's why I think Benioff's laughing there. Like he's, Kramer says, what are the, some of the big accounts that got you there? He wants Benioff to start listing their top customers, these, these huge deals, so that they can get some native ads for them, too. But it was it was an odd introduction. He He... He, he's been talking. He was talking like a mile a minute. Yeah. First of all, well, he you know he, he basically doesn't even pronounce every, about every third or fourth word. Just, it I, gets I, I truncated. I don't think he was breathing. Maybe Benioff's laughing because he's like, dude, you did not breathe. Yeah. You just went like for like two minutes and you did not breathe. Yeah. Well, that's what meth does for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I've got an I've got a similar one here. Well, I wanted to know that you're in, in the uh, last conference call, you I call this bump set and spike. By the way. Gave up front, but you didn't put it in the release. Dollar value of, bo- of uh, book business on off balance sheet. What is that up to now? 
Well, Jim, uh, now the uh, booked, uh, uh, book business on and off the balance sheet now is up to $14.5 billion. Yeah, great, great number, right? I mean, they're, they're you know, build and unbuild deferred revenues, $14 billion, which is actually a, a, a great number. I mean, that's huge. But... <laughs> It's it's like it's like when they and they when they had the pre meeting you know Benioff said listen I got to I got to get this fourteen billion dollar number out I really want to talk about it up front so I need you to I need you to set that up for me you know, you know what bump set and spike is that's that's yeah. volleyball right you bump set and then and then yeah it's all so that last person can then spike it right that's what it was. <laughs> It was a bump set spike. Well, I wanted to know, that you're in, in the wanted, uh, last conference you gave up front, but you didn't put it in the release, dollar value of, bo- oh, of uh, didn't put book it in the business on off balance sheet. What is it that up to it now? Isn't it? What is that? What is that? What does that happen to be up to now? <laughs> God. All right. Uh, here we go. More native ads. The customers that you make more successful. All right, well, let's talk about some of the customers that you make more successful. Uh, last time you had a great win with City. This time it's an augmentation of a big deal with another bank that's one of my favorites, U.S. Bancorp. What are they doing with your project to make it so that they are more personal in their banking? And- <laughs> now, Jim, when you introduce uh, U.S. Bank, I really needed to talk about how they're able to make things more personal for their customers. Okay, can you get that in there? <laughs> more able to be online in their banking. He's well, they're laughing. doing what a lot of our customers it's, are doing, which is... It's, it's hard not to laugh. <laughs> it's so cheesy. It's so obvious. Like, he's got this script that Salesforce wanted him to say, you know, specific customers, and talk about how each one of them, he's just reading from the script. He, he sets them up and Benioff tees it off. Well, maybe he's messing up his words. Like, they gave him the script, but he keeps messing it up. Well, he does mess them. Because yeah. I think he meant to say product, and he they said didn't, project. And they didn't have any big mess. We've caught them on mess-ups before on the script, where they get where they kind of get sideways on the script or get yeah. off a little bit. All right. Um, okay. Figuring out the B2B and the B... You're, a lot of your consumer package good customers need that kind of information. Can you imagine being the person responsible for like, cleaning out his microphone after the... No. <laughs> Mark, they need to get out of the B2B into the B2C. You need to give them more of that. And we're doing that, Jim. You can see that. That's one of the reasons that we acquired Demandware and now delivering our uh, incredible commerce cloud this year as part of our marketing cloud efforts. Uh, You can see huge wins this quarter with Gaps, with Levi. Gaps. Do you ever shop with the Gaps, John? Uh, No. Well, I don't know. The Gaps is a lot of things. Isn't it like... (laughs) Old Navy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's, it's Gap. Yeah, but uh, it, it Gap is like all these. It's a conglomerate now, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but it's called Gap. Gap Inc. is the name of the company. If you want to know, well, the Gap is with yeah. Yeti with a lot of amazing uh, companies that Commerce Cloud far exceeded our expectations in the quarter. And then, of course, our marketing cloud. You know, here's a billion dollar business that when we acquired it just a few years ago it was only a few hundred million. And you probably know, Jim, that Marketing Cloud has 450 million users on it. Um, our Commerce Cloud has 300 million users on it. I mean, this is... You could, you could just see this again also. Like, hey, yeah, we really want to... You know, we bought this company, Demandware, which is another... It's a, like a B2C thing. And we really want to talk about B2C. So can, can you set me up for that too? It's, you know, that's just how that went, don't you think? B and the B... You're, a lot of your consumer package good customers need that kind of information, Mark. Okay, I, I just I just want to pa- let's pause and just say the mouth noise is not coming from us. No, it's not. I don't think it is. It, it's either it's coming me. from Kramer or Benioff. Yeah. One of them's got some major mouth noise right. going on. All right, uh, let's see. This I found this interesting. Partnered. Okay, yeah. you were a partner that last quarter was just amazing because the city, but also because of Amazon. You just they they can't stop with the with the. 
Maybe they didn't give him a script this time, and he's just going on. They give him like an but no, he, he's obviously they, he's got these names, the, all these no, logos. It's the they logos. Gave, John. They gave him the outline. They didn't give him the full script. That that let's let, let's let him let's let him Ad-lib run wild. A little bit. See, that's and, that's and, dangerous to let him. And that's why he's laughing because he's just going off. Yeah, I, mean, I bet the next time he's gonna it's gonna be scripted. He's gonna be like, no, we can't do that again. All right. What has happened to go forward with the Amazon partnership? Because I've got to tell you, Mark, other than you guys, there really isn't anyone who knows more about artificial intelligence. Other than oh Salesforce. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Other, oh, he knows great, didn't it? I'm going to rewind that. Amazing because the city, but also because of Amazon. What has happened to go forward with the Amazon partnership? Because I've got to tell you, Mark, other than you guys, there really isn't anyone who knows more about artificial intelligence, machine learning than Amazon. So is it, how is Wait, I'm waiting for Benioff to laugh his ass off. Uh, let's see. Is it working together? Well, I think he was. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. One last question. Here's one last numbers question. Numbers are fabulous. Oh, one on. last question. All these numbers are fabulous. I and mean, you and I both know that. Okay, John, what was the question there? I, I, I didn't hear one. <laughs> one last question. All these numbers are fabulous. I and mean, you and I both know that. <laughs> Is there a rhetorical question? I don't know. I guess so. Okay. One more. Then we're done. Numbers. One last question. All these hey, numbers hey, yeah. are fabulous. I and mean, you All and right. I numbers are fabulous I and mean, you and i both know that and this is the kind of thing if i ran this business i'd be in all oh this hang on let me forward uh, this is a uh, blame it on brexit put in a guidance <laughs> line 22 to 23 percent for next quarter which is uh, for uh, which is not as fast as 27 28 so people reach a conclusion that therefore you're slowing what do we tell those people well, one thing I want you to remember, Jim, and you remember this from two quarters ago, that that foreign exchange environment right now is highly unpredictable. And in that second quarter, if we hadn't had that foreign exchange shift that occurred right. through Brexit, these numbers for the year might be a high. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Do you remember when, when before they uh, passed Brexit, um, the, the predictions that, the, you know, we were going to have gl- a global, you know, financial calamity, uh, global depressions? If, if that if this happened and it was funny because you know brexit passed and then the next couple of days and uh you know st- stock markets were i think down a little bit but within like a week you know they're back up roaring again like like nothing ever happened but here we are at six months later and we're still blaming we're still blaming things on brexit <laughs> um i saw on uh march 7th that there's going to be some uh big webcast i think it's do you remember the one uh, that they, they it's like their 2017 fiscal year kickoff they did where they brought in Metallica to, or the guy mm-hmm. from Metallica to play, uh, what do you, like, National Anthem, right? I mean, that was one they, of, they're like, supposed to play something and they, they didn't have all the members or something and they ended up just playing that. I don't remember. There was something like that. Woo is right. Rock on, Metallica. <laughs> no, I think the problem, remember, they, they, they couldn't get his amp uh, hooked oh, up yeah, or something. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. But that's but, still... No, but there's, they're going to, I think, do another one of those. And it's going to be webcast. That's March 7th. So keep our eye on that. Yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, these Kramer clips, there you go. That's boring. It seems kind of boring. I don't no, know. No, they're always entertaining. Yeah. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's a character for sure. I just can't believe the degree to which this is a, they're just reading off this script. And, you know, Salesforce has given them all the topics they want to cover and all the names that they need him to drop. And they need him to set up Benioff to talk about, you know, B2C and, and AI and all these different things. It's like, it's just so silly. I just, I, I, <laughs> just, just the, what he says and the things he says, it's just crazy. Like, I don't know, you're the only one I know of that's doing anything with AI. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. 
I mean, uh, yeah. Other than other than Salesforce, Amazon's the only one that really. Yeah, knows I didn't see AI. Einstein on on Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, there's I'm sure a lot of smart people working on AI at Salesforce, but I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not get carried away here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm I'm traveling this weekend, and but we should be back next week, normal time. Is that the schedule? I think so. I hope so. I'll be here. Yeah, no, I'm I'm back. I'm back Sunday night. So okay, but uh, yeah, um, share us with your friends. Give us a review on iTunes, please. Those are good. I don't think we got any reviews, did we? Did you check? I did. Nothing. Well, I checked my email. Yep. Big goose egg this week. Yep. Uh, yeah, it helps. Uh, reviews on iTunes are just are just uh, star star ratings are good. What else is good? Uh, we can't we can't say hardest and overcast because they change it from heart to a star. It's okay, actually I think it says recommend now. The word so you can oh. recommend us. I don't know what that does, but got to do something. Uh, yeah. there's been, uh, people have been getting on our Facebook page, so that's nice. I need to put more attention to it, but, uh, yeah, thanks people. for getting on there and like, liking and. So there's someone other than me, you and Jay. Yeah. yeah. Jay Williams, that is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. That's all I got, John. That's all I got. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. That was awesome. So great job. Roll on highway. Oh, fuck.